the year 1953. A plane touches down at Smithy's Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. Hey there, this is Josh Ersam and you're listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. This episode is on Normie Rowe and the Playboys and their number one smash hit, It Ain't Necessarily So. Our special guest is Australia's original king of pop himself, Normie Rowe. It ain't necessarily so It ain't necessarily so the things that you're liable to read in the Bible ain't necessarily so. There's always been a bit of a Sydney-Melbourne divide in, well, almost everything. However, it was never more evident than when rock and roll arrived in Australia in the late 1950s. Australia's two largest cities are separated by about a thousand kilometres of road, but sometimes they can be worlds apart. The first wave of our own homegrown rock and roll heroes and teenage heartthrobs predominantly came from Sydney. Festival Records had their now famous studio there, and all the national music TV shows like Bandstand, Six O'Clock Rock and Teen Time were all filmed in the Harbour City. That's not to say that the Victorians weren't rocking as hard as those north of the border, it's just nationally their stars didn't shine as bright. In Melbourne they had their own charts and own stars. The Lee Gordon Big Show tours would fill Festival Hall with fans to see the big-named American stars, However, it was out in the melting pot of the suburbs that Victorian bands dominated the local scene. The first wave of local stars were led by Johnny Chester and the Chessmen, along with Colin Cook, Judy Kennan and bands such as the Planets, the Thunderbirds, the Cherokees and the Phantoms, to name just a few. These acts recorded songs that topped the charts in Melbourne, as well as selling out suburban dance halls and creating their own rock and roll hysteria. Normie's start in music came when he formed a duo with a mate from Northcote. Then together with a few more mates, they formed a band called The Valiants. The Valiants soon became the Mustangs, and while neither band would survive to record anything, some of the band members went on to make their mark in the music world. Yeah, Mel Clark, who uh, wound up in uh, uh, with Tony Woosley and the Blue Jays, and a little bit later he was uh, with Bulla McCanker, who wrote Give Me a Home Amongst the Gum Trees. Uh, yeah, Mel and I were, were we started singing Buddy Holly and Everly Brothers songs. Uh, and then we formed a band, and one of the inclusions in the band was a, a fellow called Marty Vanags. We had a lot of, lot of kids from all over the world, immigrants, and he was from a Dutch family, uh, came to Australia after the Second World War, uh, became very well known as Marty Christian and one of the New Seekers. Uh, they had big hits worldwide. For Normie, the rock and roll bug bit early, and it was with the help of leading Melbourne DJ Stan Rofe that saw Normie receive his first big break into show business. Stan the Man was very, very popular on the radio station 3KZ. He had um, a late afternoon, early evening program every weekday, and then he had, I think on Sunday, he had the, uh, presented the Hit Parade, which was, you know, a countdown of the top 10 or whatever it was in the days. And he liked what we did, 
uh, he asked me if I wanted to go on and sing. I said, I, that's all I really want to do. And he said, give me a call at the radio station on Monday afternoon at such and such a time, which I, I phoned him. Uh, and then he said, can you come into the station? I, th- I was 13. I didn't know, you know, that stuff from Clay. But I, I, uh, I phoned him and I got in the tram by myself. Uh, Mum said, yeah, it's okay, off you go. I went into 3KZ, he put me on the air, I was dumbstruck, I didn't know what to say or, or how to speak on the radio, and he, and he just looked after me and then he, then he said, uh, would you like to go and sing at Preston Town Hall? Now, Preston Town Hall, I'd only ever heard of advertised on the radio, on his program. And people like Johnny Chester, uh, Colin Cook, and the Thunderbirds and the Chessmen, the um, the Cherokees and all all these people that only have, and they'd been recording artists. They were that's where they played. So I got there. I met my idols. I met Johnny uh, Chester and I met Colin Cook. And I just thought, okay, I've made it now. That's I I I can't dream any bigger than this. Um, and Stan said to me, you know, he said there are two things I want you to remember at the end of that that night the first night he said the first thing if you don't make it by the time you're 19 it won't be too late and I went 19 I'll be an old man and then he said but the big thing is never believe your own publicity another major figure in creating a strong music scene in Melbourne was promoter Ivan Damon following on from Lee Gordon Damon would become Australia's most successful promoter of the era Just like Gordon, Ivan Damon's influence on creating the Australian music industry that we have today is often glossed over, or even more shamefully, just totally forgotten. Ivan was, um, he he was in charge of the big picture, you know. In fact, uh, he he was running dances in Adelaide. He came to Melbourne, bought a couple of theatres, and then saw the competition and decided to buy those those venues out. And then, uh, at the same time, he bought the 99-year lease on Cloudland Ballroom in Brisbane, which was the biggest ballroom in the Southern Hemisphere, and he ran his whole show from that place. And from, from the t- that time, the early time, when I was, I think it was about 64 when I first went to Brisbane with Bobby Shaw, uh, we drove from Melbourne to Brisbane in, in Bobby's uh, Beetle, and we went up there and we sang at a few of Ivan's dances up there. But uh, at that stage, Ivan had the big picture. He was, he was looking at, he loved the industry. He was a bit, bit of a big baby in many ways. But, you know, he had this, the, this big picture, the global brain. And, and uh, as time went on into the 70s, he had this great big whiteboard uh, with, on, down the left-hand side, all the bands and across the top, all the venues, <laughs> and he he would he he could look at all of this and see. All right, we're going to have um, Joe Bloggs and the, whatever they are in Darwin, and then they're going to finish on Saturday night. But they've got to start in Alice Springs on Wednesday, so they've only got th- two or three days to get down to Alice Springs. And then after they do Alice Springs, they're going to go out back up and across to Mount Isa. And he had these people. Everybody used to call it. Ivan Damon's magical mystery tour because you never knew where you were going to be playing next. But the thing is, 
everybody had four, five, six nights a week work, constant. Not everybody got paid all the time, on time, or any of that sort of thing. Um, He didn't do everything right. But let's face it, had he not been there, there wasn't anybody who had a big enough vision to be able to do this great big thing that was taking place. There's no denying Normie's star quality, and of course his vocals speak for themselves. But there's no doubt a large part of the band's success came from the sound created by one of the best bands in the land, the Playboys. I was the young kid on the block with the Playboys, really. The the Playboys, on average, were five to six years older than me. And uh, they'd been playing uh, for some of them up to 10 years before I even sort of walked on the stage at Preston Town Hall. So they really had experience and they were able to put together in a unique sound uh, something that was incredibly different from everybody else. Their instrumentation was different. We had a keyboard player who grew up learning the classics and had a concept. He was very technical oriented, technically oriented, and he went into uh, the equipment thing. Uh, we had all sorts of stuff going on on stage, and everybody sang. So you had all the instrumentation, you had all the singing. With it ain't necessarily so. I think we had 14 voices singing the getting that big choral sound. Uh, I, however, nothing was without, but we had, it was, it was like timpani sounds and stuff like that. We could only do that with good music producers like, like Patrick Alton, who I think was one of the best music producers of his time. And we also worked with uh, Nat Kipner uh, and his son, Stevie, went on to write Physical. Uh, Nat went on to write, I think it was um, Toast and Marmalade for Tea. He also wrote, I think it was uh, Too Much, Too Little, Too Late for Johnny Mathis. You know, so they went on and wrote a lot of, a lot of big hits. Uh, so, you know, I mean, it was a team effort all round, but we were also at the same time touring around Australia, one night stands everywhere in the country, you know, six months at a time, we'd be on the road and we'd be doing six nights a week with Sundays off. And, uh, it was, uh, an exciting and incredible time to be doing what we were doing. Sunshine started around about 1964. Um, the Playboys recorded early, but the Blue Jays, I think, were the first to record. They started recording in Brisbane. The, the guy whose idea it was, was Pat Alton, and he was basically the motivator behind the record company. Ivan owned it, um, and, uh, and Pat was a big music production aficionado, but he'd also been working with Sigley uh, and other people in, in, in Adelaide tonight before he went to Brisbane to work in the big dance there. Uh, they had a big band, by the way, at this dance that had no alcohol. Can you imagine that? And Pat said to Ivan, you know, you've you got all these artists working for you now. Why don't you record them? So Ivan said, okay, I don't know what you do, but you go and do it and I'll fund it. So that's the way he started with Tony Worsley and the Blue Jays and Marcy and the Blue Jays, Marcy Jones and uh, Tony McCann. Uh, eventually. Uh, 
they knew that the Playboys had to be recorded, so they recorded the Playboys in 1964. The Playboys ended up with an album which was the best instrumental album of the year, voted by the Australian Record uh, Industry Association. Uh, and then from there, of course, uh, we went into the studio down in Melbourne uh, and recorded It Ain't Necessarily So and a whole bunch of other songs in Melbourne at uh, the back of the St Kilda RSL. And things started to take off. In that same space, Bobby and Laurie recorded I Belong With You and... There were a whole lot of other people recording out of Melbourne who were getting some traction through the Go Show uh, and starting to get our records all over Australia. But the Sunshine label uh, head office was uh, Cloudland Ballroom in Brisbane and then it, it just spread out from there. The name Playboy now conjures up thoughts of bunnies and centerfolds. However, the band got their name in a far more innocent way. It was an accident. They didn't have a name. And the wife of the promoter uh, that had the Playboys booked turned around, Helen, turned around to the band and said, come on, you Playboys, get on stage. Stuck. In Australia in 1965, things worked a little differently compared with today. In particular, the various churches and the influence they had on the community. Their persuasive powers and wealth saw them have a say in how and why things got done. They even owned their own radio stations. Normie Rowe and the Playboys reworked a song by George and Ira Gershwin from the stage musical Porgy and Bess. Thankfully for the band, Sydney's leading radio station 2SM deemed their new single It Ain't Necessarily So to be blasphemous and decided to place a band on the song. And if music history shows us anything, it's that if a song or album is banned, it only helps the sales of the blacklisted tune to skyrocket. Yeah, Radio station 2SM to Santa Maria put a band on it, which is a really silly thing. What they should have done is not said a word, perhaps said to the DJs, don't play this song, but we're not going to ban it. You, don't, you can play it if you like, but we'd prefer you didn't. You know? Instead, they said, no, nah, we're not playing this song. And, of course, there was a huge backlash, and the kids wanted to know why, but we didn't see it as a... As, uh, as anything, but I saw it personally as um, I was very young, but I saw it sort of like a, 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 a slightly off center gospel song because it came from Porgy and Bess, you know, which was quintessentially an African American uh, musical. And the character who sang the song, uh, Sporting Life, he was, uh, uh, you know, he had a different bent on life. You know, he's saying, look, you know, you go on and you'll, you follow the Bible a bit, but it ain't necessarily so, you know. Well before the radio executives had deemed the song a danger to society, when playing It Ain't Necessarily So before a live audience, Normie could tell by the crowd's reaction to the song that they were onto something special. Yeah, well, I'd been a dancer. I'd go along and dance in, at these dances for a long time. So I knew... Whenever a song was hitting the mark with the audience, I knew because I knew what the dancers were feeling at that time. I didn't know before, 
But when you play to an audience who is so intent in what they're doing with their dancing and dance along to the music, and then all of a sudden they stop and they listen, then you've made an incredible impact on an audience that normally doesn't, that is unimpacted. Australian music was growing up and starting to believe in itself. Sure, Johnny O'Keefe had been preaching to anyone who'd listen that our singers and musicians were just as good as any from overseas, but he was pretty much a lone voice. Thankfully for the next generation of Aussie rockers, led by the likes of Billy Thorpe and Normie Rowe, they were now starting to become true believers. It's interesting, you know, I went to Festival Hall in Melbourne. It was for a show called the Liverpool Sound Show with Brian Poole and the Tremolos, Freddie and the Dreamers. I think Jerry and the Pacemakers were on, the Honeycombs and a whole bunch of other people. And they were coming on stage and I was listening to them and I was, yeah, they're really good. They got their hit records. But isn't it strange? They're no, they're no better than us. And when I say, said us, I didn't mean the Playboys and me. I meant us, we Australians. I mean us. Why, why not? Why can't we do what they are doing from Liverpool? Why can't we do... And in fact, what really happened due to pub rock some eight to ten years later is exactly that. Normie and the Playboys went into the studio to record It Ain't Necessarily So. The Playboys lineup was guitarist John Cartwright and Billy Billings, Neil MacArthur on bass, keyboardist Phil Blackmore and drummer Graham Trotter Trotman. Anyway, we went into the studio, recorded, and when it was released, it also made people stand up. I think because it was a it followed Bobby and Laurie's I Belong With You, so they were, they were ready for it. Um, but I think they, when they heard it, it was different enough for uh, especially Melbourne audiences, and I had a big following there that by this time through the Go Show. It was different enough for them to go, wow, that's really different and interesting, and I'm going to go and buy this record. And then it started to take off in Melbourne and next thing you know, same thing in Sydney and Brisbane and Adelaide and Perth and Darwin and Hobart, Launceston and, you know, everywhere. It just went just bananas. It Ain't Necessarily So was released in April 1965 by Sunshine Records. The producer was Pat Alton and the single hit number one and stayed on the national charts for 22 weeks. It marks the arrival of Normie and the Playboys as a major force with many more hits yet to come. But that's all for future episodes of the podcast. Okay, that's enough of the talk. Here's It Ain't Necessarily So by Normie Rowe and the Playboys. It ain't necessarily so It ain't necessarily so The things that you're liable in the Bible ain't necessarily so Moses was found in a stream Moses was found in a stream Saved from the water by old Pharaoh's daughter Moses was found in a stream Jonah he lived in a Fishes at Domen, Jonah he lived in a whale. It ain't 
Thanks for listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. Thanks to Normie for your time, and thanks to Normie Rowe and the Playboys for the music. Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions, written and produced by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kip. And presented by Josh Urson. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, Hit it, girl! That I've been to and now Now I know